Is it okay to ignore politics? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Chris Fryman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Chris Fryman. Chris is an associate professor of philosophy at the College of William and Mary. His research interests include democratic theory, distributive justice, and immigration. His work has appeared in the Australasian Journal of Philosophy, Philosophical Studies, Philosophy of Phenomenological Research, the Journal of Ethics and Social Philosophy, Politics, Philosophy and Economics, and the Oxford Handbook of Political Philosophy, just to name a few. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. He's done a previous episode with us, which you guys can check out, where he explored whether people have the right to immigrate. Chris, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here in person. Live and in the flesh. It's It's beautiful. I love it. Yes. Awesome. Uh, So, Chris, as you know, in each episode, we start with a question, just go wherever the discussion leads us. So let's kick it right off. It's up to you now. Is it okay to ignore politics? Yes. Yes, it is. And... The basic reason why I think it's okay to ignore politics is that in typical cases, your political participation won't make much of a difference. Hmm. So there are exceptional cases where that might not be true, but most of the time, for example, casting a vote in a large-scale national election isn't going to make a difference to the outcome. And I think it's hard to make the case that you have a moral obligation to do things that don't make a difference. And let me just give you a case that motivates that idea. So an analogy, imagine that there is some impending natural disaster. So maybe, uh, I don't know, there's an asteroid or something like that that's threatening to destroy this town. And it occurs to you, here's one thing you could do. You might walk across the street where there's this well. And you pick up a coin and you could toss that coin into the well. And as you're doing this, you make a wish for the asteroid to go away. Now, of course, casting that wish would not, in fact, have any impact on whether or not the asteroid hits or not. Uh, But in some sense, it expresses your desire to see the asteroid go away. I think very few people would say that you have a moral obligation to throw the coin into the wishing well and wish that the asteroid goes away. And the reason is because it wouldn't make any difference. Similarly, in many cases of political participation, like I said, in the case of maybe casting a single vote, it won't make a difference. Uh, And so if you think, which is a view that I find plausible, that uh, you don't really have a moral duty to do things that have no causal impact, it's hard to see why you would have a moral duty to participate in politics in cases where it won't make a difference. And this is particularly, uh, particularly the case, I think, when you think about the opportunity cost of participating in politics. So not only is your participation in politics unlikely to make a difference, it's also the case that it takes away time and resources from other things that do make a difference. So the time that you invest in politics is time that you don't invest in volunteering at a local food bank, working overtime at your job, and donating that money to effective charities. So I think if you want to make the world a better place, ignore politics, and focus on other non-political forms of altruism. Awesome. Great overview. So let's drill into everything you just set up. So at at the beginning of your forthcoming book, which of course I got a sneak peek at, so that's awesome. (laughs) So people keep an eye out for when it comes out. You you get into the fact that it it turns out a lot of people are not happy when asked with the idea uh, of not voting, really. So you, I have a quote here. You said, Americans think that voting in elections is one of the most important parts of being a good citizen. Indeed, nearly as important as obeying the law itself. So why do you think this idea has become ingrained in people's minds? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I'm not exactly sure why sort of non-philosophers have have the view that it's really important to vote. I'm sure that there are sociological explanations. So it's the sort of things thing that our parents tell us to do, uh, the sort of thing that we're told to do uh, in schools, Uh, As far as philosophical reasons why people might think they have a duty to vote, I I think there are a number of them. So one common objection to the line of argument that I just gave is, well, uh, elections aren't really analogous to asteroids. In the asteroid case, it's true that you casting a vote won't make any difference. But elections aren't quite like this. So it's true that you casting a vote won't make a difference. But if everybody does it, that's going to make a difference. And so there's this 
generalization test that a lot of philosophers, I think also a lot of non-philosophers like to apply to my argument where they'll just say, look, it's true uh, in and of itself, you staying home on election day isn't going to make a difference. But if everybody does that, it's going to be really bad. And so from the fact that it would be very bad if everybody did it or if everybody refused to do it, um, the outcome would be very bad. Some people wouldn't draw the conclusion that it's wrong for you as a particular individual not to do it. Uh, and, and I find that when I have this conversation with students or with friends who aren't philosophers, this is kind of the initial line of defense that they raise against my objection. So the, the lens that they're applying is more about they're thinking in the macro. They're exactly. not really taking, although someone may ask, do you think you should vote? You find a lot of people are thinking about the question really being, should everyone vote? That's the way people take it. Right. So, so right. So, so my response is, it's true that if, you know, a lot of people doing it does make a difference. That That's right. Um, but, I, but I'm not a lot of people. I'm one person. Uh, so my question is always, what can I as a particular individual on the margin do to produce the most good? Uh, and in almost all cases, that won't involve political participation. So maybe if you're a senator, that's not going to be the case. Maybe if you're a voter in one of a handful of swing states, that might not be the case. But in many, many cases, it, it, it just it will never be the best use of your time uh, is voting. And it's, it's true uh, that if everybody thought this way, the results might be bad, although I'm not totally persuaded that's the case. Uh, but my view is that's true of a lot of things that are clearly morally permissible to do. So for example, uh, it seems like it's morally permissible for someone to become a neurosurgeon. Uh, in fact, it would probably be a great thing for somebody to become a, neuro a neurosurgeon, assuming that they're good at it. Uh, if everybody became a neurosurgeon, that would be really bad. Uh, nobody would be farming food to feed the neurosurgeon. So we'd have a lot of you know, great brain surgeries, but we would have no food. Uh, so uh, I, I don't think the what if everybody did that test is a good one to apply to assess the morality of an action. And typically, we don't use this test in other cases. So like in the case of career choice, which I just gave, um, we say, no, it's, it's, it's fine and probably a good thing that there's a division of labor, that there are some people who are neurosurgeons and that there are some people who are farmers. Yes, if everybody was a farmer, that would be bad. If everybody was a neurosurgeon, that would be bad. But that's just not the reality. The reality is we have X number of people being farmers, X number of people being neurosurgeon. And so you might ask yourself, what can I as a particular individual do on the margin uh, to have a career that, that helps society the most? or to, to a significant extent. And so I would apply the same line of reasoning to other sorts of choices. So you say, should I focus on private non-political altruism or should I focus on politics? Well, plenty of people are voting. So many people are voting, in fact, that your vote is extremely unlikely to make a difference. And so that tells me that you should deploy your, your altruistic resources elsewhere where they're more likely to have a positive impact. I'd like to support that by uh, providing a quote here. It actually happens to be a quote from you. <laughs> so you say in your book, there's nothing wrong with ignoring politics. To the contrary, you should disengage from politics to pursue more effective forms of altruism. Instead of watching presidential debates, attending city council meetings, and writing letters to your representative, you should spend your time on charitable activities that are more likely to change people's lives for the better. And then you say, go ahead, be apolitical, guilt-free. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. So uh, in the book, I talk about effective altruism, which is the idea that we ought to direct our charitable resources to the causes that do the most good. And, you know, there's some debate and discussion about this idea. Um, but one of the the uh, sort of prime examples of an effective charity is the Against Malaria Foundation, and this is an example that I use in the book. Um, but the last time I checked, uh, I think it, uh, something like a $3,700 donation to the Against Malaria Foundation was enough to save one life through mm. their charitable uh, charitable endeavors, uh, distributing anti-malarial bed nets uh, and saving kids' lives. Uh, and so you say, okay, uh, if I really focus on effective charities like this one, and there are other ones that are in that same kind of ballpark, uh, I can literally save lives. So suppose I say, I never watch another political debate. I never vote again. Uh, I don't read the op-ed page. I don't really pay attention to politics, but here's what I'm going to do. I'll take the time that I would have spent doing politics or thinking about politics on something more productive. So maybe it's as simple as you work an hour of overtime every month at your job or two hours of overtime. And you say, okay, I'm going to save that up. And then I'm going to donate that to an effective charity. Uh, 
for one, that's going to do more good for the world. You'll eventually, you know, you'll probably donate enough to uh, help people save their lives, which is not the case uh, with your political activism. Also, you'll probably be be happier. So the the guilt free thing, uh, you shouldn't feel guilty uh, that you've disengaged from politics if it means that you've uh, used that spare time to something that's actually more beneficial for the world. Um, so so you'll probably be happier because you're not tearing your hair out about you know the country's political situation, uh, and you might also have more satisfaction with the fact that you've made the world a better place, which is not what would have happened if you had spent all that time. On politics, and and so you, you did touch on, and we'll get into it a little bit later as well, a little more deeper. But about the idea that you know some people sort of, I guess, conflate the idea of this generalization principle to like the individual, whether the individual has a moral duty to do something or not. I want, I'll, I'll give you like another just example I just thought of right now, and you could tell me how it's it's analogous or how it's different in terms of the way it generalizes. So let's say we, we can look out the window right now. We're here at the ILS. We see someone getting beaten up on the street. Let's say, and then I say, uh, Chris, we should go stop that. We have a duty to do so for whatever reason. Let's not get into that. Let's just assume we do. <laughs> <laughs> let's just assume we do. And and so, so at that point. Um, you say no. Just let's say you do, and then um, you use, and then I say, well, Chris, if, if everyone didn't, we'd have a problem. Now, can you tell me why that's a little different when we move it remove from voting? I'm trying to remove yeah. the example from from voting, so people can kind of untangle in their head and really understand what you mean by this generalization idea here. Yeah, yeah, good. So I think in that case, what I would say is, well, I think we would have a duty to intervene, um, but I think uh, part of why we would have that duty is because we can actually make a difference. Uh, so I think it would be different if you said, well, we have a duty to intervene. And I say, well, how so? What what specifically? And you say, well, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, you know, uh, light birthday candles and blow out the birthday candles and make a wish uh, that the situation goes away. Like, well, or we're going to shout from a distance. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, or even like shot into a pillow so nobody can hear, something right. like that. <laughs> so, something that will have zero causal impact. Fair. I, th I think in that case, it would say, well, it's not so odd. So, you, you might have a so, so I think you do have a duty to intervene in ways that will be helpful, uh, but it's hard for me to see why you would have a duty to intervene in ways that would make no difference. Right. So that's sort of the crux of the matter in that example. Is right. That's an area where you can see that if everyone did intervene and let's say actually went downstairs and broke up the fight or whatever it was, that actually has an impact. And that's what you're saying ultimately. Right. And and there might be, though, other, other sorts of objections uh, that you might make to the argument I give where you say, well... Um, there's the, this idea that when we're uh, engaged in political activity, it's this collective endeavor that's that's really beneficial. And so you have a duty to be part of this collective effort to, to improve politics or advance justice or make the world a better place and so on. Uh, and, and I think that's in the spirit of a lot of arguments that some philosophers make in favor of a duty of participation, where you just have to, con you have to contribute something to the common good. And my basic response to that is that sounds plausible to me that you do have a duty to contribute to the common good, but there's no particular reason it has to be political in form. So it could take many different forms. So mm -hmm. you can contribute uh, with your job, you can contribute with philanthropy, you can contribute with art and science. Uh, the question that, that I always ask myself is, well, why would it have to take a distinctively political form? Uh, because you can contribute to the common good in lots of non-political ways and the kind of uh, altruistic activity I have in mind would also do that. It just happens not to be political. And so you also say in the book, a general moral duty to participate cannot be grounded in the good consequences of your participation. So elaborate on that a little bit too. We talked a bit about generalization and that kind of principle right now, but you're talking about the consequences now can't even be sort of a gauge of whether you should have a duty to participate or not. Is this because we can't tell what the consequences will be? Is that ultimately what it is? Or I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. So uh, depending on, on who you ask, uh, your, the, the odds of your vote, let's just say in the United States presidential election, actually making a difference are, uh, you know, depending on what state you live in and, and some of the details, it might be as high as like one in 10 million. Uh, and in other cases, it's, it's zero effectively. Uh, and, and so I think just the, the futility of most political engagement is a big reason why you can't justify a duty of political engagement in terms of consequences, because it doesn't, it doesn't affect anything. It's like, it's like casting the wish. But then uh, to your point about it, it being hard to know the consequences, I think this also speaks against a duty, even in cases where you might be able to make a difference. It's just very, very hard to know what the right uh, sort of public policy is. Um, at a minimum, I think to have justified confidence in your beliefs about what the right policies are, you have to do a lot of work. So I don't mm. think it's the sort of thing that you just 
tune into a debate, uh, somebody tells you something that you like hearing, and then you think that you're going to vote for that person. I think it's got to be much more rigorous than that. Right. Um, and then once you actually start engaging in rigorous empirical inquiry, maybe rigorous philosophical inquiry. So a lot of these political questions are contested philosophical questions. To take a central case, abortion. So you know, what do we think about the moral status of a fetus? Uh, what do we think about uh, a woman's right of bodily autonomy? These are all philosophical questions. They take a lot of hard thinking to, to try to sort out. So I think if, if you were serious about aiming your vote or aiming your political participation at the best consequences, you'd have to do a lot of homework. And one issue there is that homework has opportunity costs. So if you're really buckling down and you're, you're cracking open the books and, and you're engaged in sort of real open-minded debate with people from the other side of the aisle, that's time that you're not, say, working to help fund the Against Malaria Foundation. Okay. And so once and the, and the other thing, too, is I'm quite confident that a donation to the Against Malaria Foundation has good consequences. Maybe not 100 percent confident, but pretty confident. I think we should be far less confident that our vote is aimed at good consequences. It's just a lot harder to know. And, and it is true. I mean, like, like you're saying, to, to self-educate yourself on an important issue like abortion from many angles or and, and to really become a, like an expert on a certain topic, that does take a lot of time. But some may, I can just picture them in my head now, some may turn around to you and say, okay, fair enough. They accept that. But then they go, but do you really have to become that much of an expert to still cast your vote or at least be involved and have an opinion politically in that in that way? They may say, look, I might not know everything about a certain topic, but I still feel like it's important because the little bit or medium amount, if you will, that I do know tells me that I, I really feel strongly about this conclusion. So I will vote or have an opinion based on that. So, so do you really need to become an expert or are we back in a situation where you better be an expert because it has consequences? Right. So I don't know if you have to be an expert, but I think you probably need more expertise than most people think. So here again, there might be exceptional cases. So it could be that uh, you know, in any given election, uh, that there is someone who is just glaringly terrible and you don't really need to uh, go to the library to, to, to figure out who the right person to vote for is. Hmm. Uh, so, so there might be exceptional cases. But I also think we probably tend to err on the side of overconfidence. And so this is not even so much about a lack of information acquired. It's about the uh, a sort of a lack of unbiased processing of that information. So I think people are just generally overconfident in their political beliefs. They're very confident that their party will do good and the out party will do bad. But we have mountains of evidence now uh, suggesting that, that almost all of us, with some exceptions, uh, we're prone to politically motivated reasoning. So we're, we just more readily accept evidence that our side is doing good and that the other side is doing bad. And so my suspicion is that when we feel like it's obvious that we're right and the other side is wrong, we maybe want to take a step back, have some critical distance, and question whether that might not be the product of partisan bias. And we say, like, yeah, it's, it's just very easy to think that our team is, is just the, the obviously right choice. Um, but I think given the information we have about how prone we're, we are to these biases, we should be humble uh, about our political opinions. And I, and I guess if even someone does come back to you and say, look, I get that, you know, my vote may be just as good as wishing for something in a wishing well, but they feel that, hey, but the symbol still means something to me. You're, you're still arguing, I guess, that if you if you think that the symbol has value and that means you haven't researched that much, you're saying the pit, the other pitfall is ultimately that all the reasoning that you're having behind is probably based on your gut feeling or your political motivated or politically motivated reasoning. Sorry. That's right. I think in many cases. So my view is something like this. Uh, given what we know about politically motivated reasoning, I think that the burden of justification is is on the person who thinks that they're exempt from this. So you might be. So, so and I think that there are, in fact, people uh, who are probably far less vulnerable to politically motivated reasoning. But I think the default assumption is that you are, and I am. And so you would need a really good special reason to think that you're the exception. But but also the point about the symbolism, I think, is important because this is something that, that people say as well, which is, look, yeah, maybe it is like ca casting a, a wish uh, in the wishing well, casting the coin in the wishing well. Uh, but that still has value, like showing that I care about the country and politics and justice has value. Um, and, and there are intuitive cases that support this. So I think, for example, uh, you know, clapping. So I'll, I talk about this case in the book. Uh, you could imagine that there is a great humanitarian who wins the Nobel Prize. And you might say clapping for that person at the award ceremony 
doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't really have much of a causal impact in any meaningful way. But you might say it would be it it would be somehow bad to just sit on your hands and refuse to clap to this per, clap uh, for this person. Why? Well, maybe you have a duty to engage in these expressive actions or these symbolic actions, and and maybe voting's like that. I'm skeptical of this line of argument for a few reasons. One, as you mentioned. Um, there's this this issue of what exactly you're expressing when you're going to the polls. So if you're just saying, look, I'm actually not going to do any of the, the, the heavy lifting and try to figure out who truly is the best person, I'm just going to indulge my biases and cast my vote on that basis. I'm not sure that sends the right message. I think, if anything, that kind of uh, sends a cavalier message and is probably the, not the right one to send. Uh, and I also think it's a little strange... Um, that you would uh, perform an action that sends the message that you care um, when the opportunity cost of sending that message is actually helping the cause that you purport to care about. So I give the, I give the following sort of case in the book. Imagine that you are, um, I don't know, uh, driving down the road and you stop at an intersection and you see a young child by the side of the road and you stop and you ask them what's going on and they say, uh, could you please help me? Uh, I'm very hungry. I haven't eaten in a few days. And I was wondering if you could um, buy me a dinner because I'm starving. And you say, well, maybe, but here's the dilemma. Uh, I, I could spend, so I only have $10 in my wallet and I could spend that $10 buying you dinner, but I was on my way to a store where I was going to spend this $10 buying a t-shirt that said, uh, feed hungry children. And I can't do both. <laughs> I can either give you the 10 bucks to buy dinner or I can get the t-shirt that says feed hungry children. And you think to yourself, well, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to feed this hungry kid, but I am going to spend the 10 bucks at the uh, at the store buying the t-shirt that says feed hungry children. We would think this is perverse if you did this. Right. You'd say, look, if you care about feeding hungry children, feed the hungry child. Don't By definition, it's an empty gesture right. at that point, right? That, that's right. Or it's like when, uh, yeah, uh, you know, you, you're sick or something like that and you need help. And, you know, you ask an acquaintance or say, I don't like, can you drive me to the doctor? And they say, uh, no, but, you know, my thoughts are with you. You say, well, OK, that doesn't that doesn't really help very much, does it? And so the, the strange thing about political activism and, and uh, sort of political participation in general is it's kind of like buying the T-shirt that says feed hungry children instead of spending those resources actually feeding hungry children. So you could actually just take this style of case. So one thing you could do is invest time and effort in figuring out who the best candidate on the issue of food security is, and then really agitating for their election. So like really putting in the work to get them elected, which probably isn't going to make a difference. Um, but you send the, you sort of send the signal that you care about food and security. Or what you could do is volunteer at a food bank, work overtime, donate that money to a food bank, and actually feed hungry kids who otherwise wouldn't have gotten fed. And so I think if you care about food and security, then do what you can to actually help feed people, which is typically not political participation. And then just as kind of a nice bonus, as kind of icing on the cake, I think when you actually uh, feed hungry children, you you also, as a secondary effect, express that you care about feeding hungry children. So it would be very weird if you you know you had this scenario that I was describing, and you uh, you know when you're done, you chat with a friend, and the friend says, "Oh, so I understand that you didn't go." Uh, to the store and buy the T-shirt that said "Feed Hungry Children." You actually bought a meal for the hungry child, but like, how did how did you show that you cared about hungry children? And this would kind of be a baffling thing for your friend to say because right. you'd be like, well, what, what are you talking about? The fact that I fed a hungry child is precisely the thing that sent the signal that I cared. And so, I think as a bonus, if you disengage from politics and focus on non-political forms of altruism, that in its so I'm not in love with this idea we should care a whole lot about sending messages, but I think insofar as you do care about that, um, you get that for free, so to speak, when you perform non-political altruistic acts that truly benefit people. And, and I guess what I'm about to say isn't really a, a specific question, and I'm, I'm wondering out loud, so maybe you can wonder out loud with me too, because sure. I'm sure that uh, you know the work you've done, maybe you haven't done the stats on this, for instance, but I'm, I'm do want, I am wondering if people that are really engaged in the process, or, and let's say they're not just the type of people that sit on their couch, watch TV a lot, and then vote, let's say these are people, like you said, they're they're agitating for people's election, they're volunteering. It, it, 
it sort of brings the question to mind, are, are they, is it that they value that symbolism more than actually doing something else? Or have they somehow, maybe through politically motivated reasoning, convinced themselves that that is making a difference? I, like I said, it's not really a question. I'm just, well, maybe you can wonder aloud with me at that one. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I do wonder. Um, so uh, it's interesting. So based on conversations that I have with, with undergraduate students, um, they they are willing to grant fairly quickly in the conversation that their activism won't do much good. Mm. Um, although sometimes you'll you'll hear hear people say, "Well, what this means is that you should focus on more local activism." So you're not going to change the outcome of a presidential election, but maybe you can lobby hard and get a pothole fixed, something like that. And so you can make a difference. Uh, I buy that. I think that's probably right. Um, but here again, the, the question of opportunity cost looms large. So you could, you know, uh, lobby local government to fix a pothole, or you could just, you know, I don't know, fix the pothole yourself. Do you know, go rogue or do something. Be like, a, like a neighborly vigilante or something like right, that. Yeah. Just do it yourself. Um, I, I think though a lot of what, and, and this is not an original thought to me. This, um, I think Lauren Lamasky. Uh, and Jeff Brennan were the originators of this idea. So a lot of political activity, I think, is is motivated by these kind of expressive concerns. And so one popular analogy that I think is is fairly spot on is that uh, political engagement is kind of like rooting for a sports team. So you go to the stadium and you tailgate and and you cheer your team and you boo the other team. You're not really doing that because you think it's going to make the world a better place. It's a way of kind of expressing and solidifying your membership on a particular team. Right. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in in politics is that I mean may, so this is not to say that that people don't have the belief that it does good. I think in many cases they do, but I think at least part of what's motivating it is this idea of an uh, identity expressive behavior. I'm on team red, I'm on team blue, and I'm going to cheer for my team in the same way that, you know, I love the Philadelphia Eagles and I'll root really hard for them. It's not to make the world a better place. It's just an expression of who I am and, and what my tribe is. And uh, be before we leave and move on to some other notes and things I want again to talk to you about, uh, I just want to touch on politically motivated reasoning again, because I think we talked about how it applies and how it affects people. But I want you to get into a little bit more of like technically how you, how you define that. So like, I guess this is the idea that if you are motivated by politics, the information that is coming to you, the way you're processing it is always biased with that motivation. Is that is that really the core of it? Yeah. So so the idea is that our reasoning about politics is motivated by our desire to arrive at a particular conclusion. And here again, I think the sports analogy is kind of illuminating. So you can present uh, sports fans with statistics. Um, you know, indicating that players on their team are really good, or statistics indicating that they're really bad, and. They're, they're just more inclined to believe that the statistics indicating that their team, the, uh, the players on their team are good, that that's good information. Um, and so something similar is true in politics. And there's just like a whole lot of uh, a really interesting and, and fairly, frankly, sort of depressing evidence about this, um, where you can give partisans the same information about the efficacy of gun control or uh, the the deterrent effect of the death penalty, these sorts of things. And they're just uh, more likely to believe the evidence that points to uh, to to their team being right or, or having the right the right sort of views. Um, there's this great study, and uh, I'm I'm blanking on the names of the experimenters, but I think it's one of one of the more interesting ones. And I talk about it in the book where uh, they had partisans uh, hooked up to these these fMRI machines so they could take a peek at what was going on in their brains, and they would um, present them with information that clashed with their beliefs about non political matters. So I think one of the examples was, you know, did you know that Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb? Something like that. Apparently he didn't invent the light bulb. I don't know, whatever. He didn't invent the light bulb. And and people were more likely to say, or were, you know, fairly open to admitting that they were wrong and say, oh, okay, I guess he didn't know that about uh, the light bulb. Hmm. But they also presented people with um, information that contradicted deeply held political beliefs. So abortion was one of the cases that they studied. And what they found, and, and this this in and of itself is not terribly surprising, that people were just much more resistant to changing their mind about political matters. But I think the truly fascinating uh, aspect of this study is that when they were looking at what was going on in the brain, they found that people reacted to politically threatening information in the same sort of way that they um, reacted to physically 
threatening information. Wow. So, so one of the experimenters <laughs> even said, she, she said, if, if you're just looking at what's going on in a person's brain, you would think that they're being attacked by a bear. And I thought this was like truly fascinating that, that we're as protective of our political identities as we are of our, our physical bodies. We find that very, very threatening. And so my view is we should just, knowing this about ourselves, we should be very self-skeptical. Um, so it, it could be the case that, that we're wrong about immigration or abortion or the death penalty or any of these things. Uh, we might very well be wrong about this, about these sorts of questions. And if we know that we're pro prone to this identity protective cognition where we'll, we'll kind of push away evidence that tells us we're wrong, we should just be skeptical that we're, we're right. Because it could be the case that the evidence on the other side is compelling, and we just didn't believe it because it was threatening to us. Uh, and, and just one sort of final note on this. Uh, this fits in with a view of uh, Brian Kaplan, an economist who wrote this great book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, where he talks about this phenomenon of rational irrationality. So his view is that there is a very meaningful sense in which it is rational to be irrational about politics. But by that, he means uh, there's actually quite a bit of benefit to indulging bias and ignorance in politics uh, because it might affirm you know, your sense of yourself or your group membership or something like that. And the cost of, of being wrong is very low precisely because your political engagement won't, won't make a difference. So an analogy that I like to give is once again back to sports. Um, it's, it's rationally irrational for me to have biased views about Philadelphia sports. So the case I give in the book is Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, not many people think he is the greatest basketball player of all time. I think he might be. He scored 100 points in one game. He had 55 rebounds in, in one game. He's incredible. He's, he averaged 50 points a game for one season. Amazing. Amazing player. Uh, but people tend not to think he's the best basketball player of all time. Uh, I think he might be. Now, is it possible, if not likely, that this is swayed by the fact that he played in Philadelphia for a long time and I have a big Philadelphia fan? Right. Uh, pro probably. Right. Uh, I'm probably biased. Um, but so what? So what's the, what's the cost of me being biased? It's not like I can pick and choose what players are on my favorite team. If that were the case, then I would try to take a step back and be be much more rational about the whole thing. But no, by by like uh, by affirming the greatness of Wilt Chamberlain, I kind of express and solidify my member of you know Philadelphia, the Philadelphia sports tribe. Same thing with politics. So since uh, most of us have no influence whatsoever over what. Uh, politicians get elected, what policies get passed, and so on. It makes sense to indulge our biases and prove that you're a good member of Team Democrat or Team Republican. So it's irrational in the sense that it is, this is not a good way to arrive at true beliefs, but it's rational in the sense that sort of the social benefits of doing this are quite high and the costs are very low. And I think that's a great place to take a break, so we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Chris Friedman. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Darcy Giroux. Remember to link us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Curious Task. I'm here with Chris Fryman. Chris, before before the break, at one part of our discussion, one, one thing that really interested me is you talked about uh, there was there was a I guess it was at a cognitive scientist that was doing some studying on people's brains and the way it acts when they're either told something like Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb or they're told something that goes against their political right. beliefs. It was it's very interesting. You said that brains reacted the same way as if they were under some sort of physical attack. Again, wondering out loud, is, is this because people attach so much weight to their, their identity as someone that's signaling about politics? Do you think that's what that is? Because that's very interesting to me. And I've been thinking about it ever since yes. you said it. Yes. So that, that sounds right. Uh, so as my amateur opinion, uh, I, I think that's right, that people are so heavily invested in their politics and so much of their identity is bound up in their political membership. And so one, one benefit potentially of ignoring politics or abstaining from politics is we might not feel feel so threatened when confronted with uh, information that tells us we might be wrong. Right. And I think we might also just be less hostile to 
to people on the other side of the political aisle. So we won't feel so threatened by people who disagree with us about, uh, you know, re- really key political uh, beliefs. So I guess this is I- the idea where you're saying it'd be possible and probably better if people actually separate the issues from their political identity or their political tribe in a way. Like if we're talking about abortion as more of just a moral issue, not something that is going to dictate how you vote in the next month, that's you're saying might be better. Right. So I say, so I say in the book, if if you refuse to take my advice and you insist on continuing to be politically active, at the very least, it would be good if you could try to separate your identity or social identity from your politics. Right. So, I, so I recognize that that is unrealistic to to an extent because politics makes up, you know, it, it, it has uh, involves a lot of really important uh, moral and social and maybe sometimes religious questions. And so it is uh, a bit naive to think that we could ever become super clinically detached from it. But I think, you know, look at the way you might make other decisions that you think you're pretty rational about. Um, you know, you're probably pretty rational when you're making a decision about uh, what kind of pipe to use in your house. So you're willing to listen to the pros and cons of different kinds of pipe. And then you make a decision based on you know those, those considerations, and you're probably pretty rational about it. Uh, I think if we approach politics in that way, which again is, is a bit naive to think we could ever fully, fully attain that, but maybe we could approximate it, where you just say, look, it's, it's not a matter of... Um, you know, my social identity being at stake. It's a matter of like trying to figure out difficult questions and how to live together and to recognize that, that these are hard questions. Um, like I said, if if you don't take my advice and continue to participate in politics, I think that would be the right approach to take in your political life. I, I like that you use the, the pipe example in the house because it's funny because as you were talking, I was, I was just going to say that I definitely know people that they would have a strong opinion on politics or who to vote for, some like really, uh, you know, let's say aggressive opinion on something, but then something like that that's so you know, but now like a pipe in their house or some sort of home care issue. I find that they are less enthused about that, but it's like you, you talk to them and they, over the course of two weeks, because this renovation has come up or something, it's almost like they've become like a self-taught expert right. in everything to do with it. And, and they're like, you're not a contractor, but I'll hire you to do it after all that. <laughs> but, right. and, but they're, they're less enthused about it, but they, they become experts on something that, that directly affects them and that they can influence. Right. And, and so they're, pr- they're probably thinking relatively rationally about that right. decision. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- that's right. And that, and that I think I actually harmonizes with this finding that we were discussing earlier. So if somebody tells you that Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb, you say, all right, well, okay, I'll change my mind. I was wrong. Uh, and I, I think that would be the ideal if we could approach politics in that way. We say, you know what? Uh, the, the evidence that you gave me against my view is really compelling. So I guess I'm wrong. Uh, and so I'll change my view. But it's, it's really astonishing and frankly, fairly depressing that that very rarely happens. All right, shifting gears a little bit. So after everything we've been discussing, let's say we have a bunch of people they listen to this podcast and they say, I, I like what Chris is saying. I'm not going to care about politics anymore. And then someone else says, I'm upset at that because it, it creates what some people might call like a free rider problem politics, right? right? Someone might say that you, you're abstaining from politics is basically free riding on the difficult work I'm doing as a political activist. And this is something you cover in the book. So, so what would you say to someone that says something like that, that we're going to have a, a problem of free riders uh, with, with the people that are putting all this effort into it on the other side? Well, as a, as a first point, let me say I love your optimism that people will listen to my arguments and, and abstain from politics. I don't think I share your optimism. I actually, I, I give this uh, this little brief story in, a book, in the book um, where I'll have students of mine raise this objection to me. They'll say, uh, look, you know, I, 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 your, your point about the futility of an individual participant is well taken, but like, here's the problem. You're going to convince all these people not to vote and it's going to have these disastrous consequences. And I say, okay, um, let me ask you this. Uh, have I convinced you not to vote? And they go, they pause for a beat and they go, no, no, I'm still going to vote. <laughs> so, and, I, and I'm not teasing, like, they can't even butter me up. They can't even lie to me to butter me up. They should generalize that. So if everyone <laughs> isn't convinced by Chris not That's to right. vote. <laughs> and I say, look, I love, I love this flattery that uh, you think I'm this influential, but clearly I'm not this influential because I haven't even uh, convinced you. Uh, I can't even convince you to, to you know, to turn in your uh, essays on time. Uh, so that's just, so, so like I said, I love the optimism of this objection, but, but on, on the free riding point, my, my basic response to this is is that we might have a duty to not free ride, but I think that you can honor that duty uh, by contributing in ways that have little to do with politics. So just take a t- take a really small scale case. So suppose we're on a camping trip, uh, and so suppose we all have a du- so we're all 
sort of consuming goods that are that are uh, brought and produced on the camping trip, and we're supposed to pitch in. Uh, and suppose you um, have gathered water for everyone to drink. And now suppose you've gathered enough water such that if I gathered more, it would be kind of pointless. We don't need any more. And I think to myself, well, I have a duty not to free ride. So what this means is I should go and chop firewood. It seems clear that in that case, by chopping firewood, I've avoided free riding. So I didn't have to contribute in the same way you contributed to avoid free riding. In fact, it would be irrational for me to gather more water because we already had plenty. It wouldn't really have made a meaningful difference. So instead, I can contribute to the camping trip in a different way that will have more of a beneficial impact. And so I, I think a similar argument applies on the larger scale where we say, look, we have lots and lots of people being politically active. Uh, you know, it, It's very unlikely that my individual participation on the margin is going to make any sort of difference. So I can contribute to the well-being of or, or the well-functioning society in a different way. So maybe it's contributing to a food bank. Maybe it's acquiring extra skills. Maybe it's volunteering you know, at, at my kid's school or something like that. So I think you can avoid free riding uh, on the political efforts of others by contributing in non-political ways in the same way that I can avoid free riding on your water gathering efforts by contributing in a way that has nothing to do with um, water gathering. And the other thing I'll say too is a lot of the, a lot of the ends that people pursue political means too can also be accomplished outside of politics. So it could be the case that people get involved in politics because they care about environmental pres preservation, they care about alleviating poverty. But you can you can uh, contribute to those very same aims without engaging in politics at all. So maybe say mm. the, the environment is a really big issue for me, but I think I can do the, the most effective work uh, conserving the environment via private means. Maybe that's something just as simple as uh, you know, uh, saving money so that you can buy carbon offsets or you buy a hybrid car or something like that. And that way you're contributing to a clean environment in the same way that somebody who votes for a clean environment is contributing. Yours is not political. Theirs is political. But I wouldn't say that there's any kind of objectionable free riding going on in that case. Yeah. And that's a really good point. I guess you would be, and, and I shouldn't assume, maybe I'm wrong, but I, at least from the people I talk to, you'd be hard pressed to find someone that says, no, 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 just the, the act of politics or going to the voting booth or, or going to this volunteer volunteering event for a political party that in and of itself is good they usually say they're contributing to some dare i say greater good beyond that right so that's, that's what they're right. saying so that's a really good point is that okay if if there were, we're trying to achieve some sort of good like a like a better environment or whatever case may be voting or being involved in politics in the narrowest sense isn't the only way to do that exactly that's right and and sort of given the background that tons and tons of people are doing it anyway um it's probably not the most effective way of of helping uh either so here's an interesting one you talked about the the therapeutic benefits of ignoring politics. Yes. So why don't we go into that? So this is this is I think the one argument that I make that people actually buy. They'll begrudgingly buy this argument in favor of my conclusion, where I'll say, look, uh, politics it just makes us miserable. Uh, and, and there's a lot of data suggesting that it makes us miserable. Uh, so, so people lose literally lose sleep over politics. They get stressed about politics. Thanksgivings are ruined. Thanksgivings are <laughs> yes, that, that's right. Thanksgivings are ruined. Uh, friendships. So I mean, there's all this this sort of data now about. Um, Increasingly large numbers of people don't want their kids marrying across party lines. They won't date across party lines. Uh, I think one study found that after the 2016 election in the U.S., um, that members of the Democratic Party uh, experienced a loss of subjective well-being that was equivalent to losing a job. So that that's that's how much stress was caused by the election. Wow. Uh, but it's, so there are these personal costs where it just makes you miserable, and you can kind of you, you can kind of just do this self-check too. If you so you know imagine that you're watching a politician who you really hate. It stresses you out. It, it makes you miserable. Uh, and like you said, it also it, it ruins Thanksgiving and it can uh, ruin people's social lives, too. And I think this is just a shame. Uh, so it's not even uh, misery and conflict for a good cause. So I'm OK with enduring misery and conflict for this great cause. But it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's not really doing you any good um, because, again, the, the causal impact is, is very, very small. And so m my my view is, look, Dis disengage from politics. You know, try uh, to not think of yourself as a member of Team Red or uh, Team Blue, and you know, invite some people over for coffee who you might otherwise not have been able to chat with because then it would have, you know, devolved into a brawl over Donald Trump or something like that. Right. And you'll expand your social circle. 
and you'll be happier about it. So there, there's lots of, of interesting and, and distressing evidence about the way uh, polarization has caused um, people to, to sort of separate themselves along political lines. So uh, like people are increasingly uh, only associating with people who have similar sorts of political views. And politics has become this kind of central part of our social identity. So like who you are now, not just in politics, but like the way you shop, the car you drive, the TV shows that you watch, the movies that you watch, all these sorts of things sort of increasingly revolve around your political identity. Right. And I think this is unhealthy. It's not the other way around, too, which some people might assume, right? right? It's like, oh, like where I go to church or what kind of art I like, that somehow trickles into my politics, especially in the United States. Like things have certainly seemed to be reversed. Like, That's if right. If you're a Republican, you're going to watch that kind of movie and you're not going to watch, I don't know, that new career thing that came out of the Oscars. No, right? That's, that, that's right. That's a great example. Right. So you can predict what people's reception about, you know, perception of a movie is going to be right. based on their politics. And, you know, they, they hang out with other people who are of the same mind. And I think that this is a really unhealthy state of affairs. Um, one, it, it, it uh, increases hostility between the sides because they just have very little interaction with one another. And so it's easy to have this caricature of the other side as, as really ignorant and evil. But you're also just depriving yourself of, of, of something that's important in human life, which is just to interact with people who think differently than you. I think that's a that's a great thing. Right. So I, I love a good argument. I love a good argument about politics and religion and ethics and all that good stuff. And so if you're uh, sealing yourself off from people who disagree with you, I think that's, that's bad for you. You're, you're losing out on something that's really valuable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, why, why should that, like, like I was saying before, like that, it should, even for at least an hour, that shouldn't ruin Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> you know? That's right. No, I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I like the idea of being able to have a vigorous political debate and then still, you know, hugging it out afterwards. That's, I think that's uh, very important. Right. Bring it down to that sort of human level at the end of the day. Right? Yeah. Because you're not looking at people just through the lens of whatever capital letter you put in front of your name or at the end of it, I guess, as you guys do right, on the right. C-SPAN. So I'm going to do a, a little potential common objection for you here sure. that you can answer. And it, it kind of starts along the same line as like, but what if everyone took your advice, Chris? But but it, it takes a little bit of a different turn at the end, I think. So when we when we look at politics and political action, ultimately the way things are, are done and the way politicians and political parties are influenced as as you were saying and it's totally true isn't by me going to the voting booth or you going by going to the voting voting booth there's there's kind of centers of power and centers of influence right these are huge political action community uh, sorry committees uh, donors things like that um so if everyone took your advice and didn't participate in politics wouldn't we be left only with the people that have the most vested interest in influencing politicians and political power. Now, we, we could say, oh, that's kind of happening now. But but aside from that answer, I guess ultimately the finer point of this question is we put aside symbolism, we put aside like moral duty. Is, is there a case to be made for some sort of reluctant participation and awareness in politics to say, you know, if someone's not going to do this dirty job, I might myself. You know, you know what I mean? It's a right. little different than saying you have a moral duty, but I'm, I'm interested in, right. to hear your thoughts on that. So, th so that's interesting. Uh, just as a as an initial point, so so here's a further objection to the the what if everybody did that argument. Okay, and this is uh, something that I'm getting from uh, Jeff Brennan and, and Lauren Lamasky, so I can't take credit for it. But they they point out something that's that's really important about this objection. They say, look, what would happen if uh, if maybe not everybody, but tons and tons of people started dropping out of politics. So let's just say tons and tons of people stop voting. Right. Let's say everybody stops voting. Well, then it becomes rational for you to vote because you would have the deciding vote. So then you would have a causal impact in that case. And so as more and more people drop out, it actually uh, makes it like you have increasing reason to okay. participate because you'll have more and more influence. So that doesn't quite go to your question, but that's just a general point. Well, that's very important. So an analogy would be if you're on a committee of 30 and 29 abstain, then <laughs> right. you're near the 30th guy. So maybe you should vote. Th that's right. Yeah. And like, yeah, like I'll, I'll vote on on things, you know, in my job and stuff like that, because, you know, there's the causal and there's like professional duties and okay, stuff okay. like that. But but right. So um, just generally, if we ever did reach that point where tons of people were, were dropping out, it would, in fact, become rational and you might have a moral duty to do it okay, because you can do enough. a lot of good. But that's sort of an evasive response to your question. So I would say, I mean, it it it, it goes back to the question of your impact. So if you say, look, we're in a situation where uh, tons of people are dropping out and maybe the, the worst people are the ones in control of the process, do you have a duty to get engaged? I think my question would be, well, 
what's the impact of my engagement? If you tell me that I might make a significant difference, then I might say, yeah, go ahead and do it. But if you say, no, you're still probably not going to make a difference, my response would be, okay, then don't invest time and effort in politics. Uh, but maybe what you have to do is invest time and effort in ameliorating the harms caused by politics. So an example of, so I don't know, let's just like talk about the asteroid case again. You might say, um, I can't do anything about this asteroid that it's about to hit. Uh, if, if there was something I could do about it, I, I would do that thing, but I can't. Okay, well, now what should I do? Maybe what you should do is, you know, uh, start boarding up your windows, uh, setting up shelters for people who need to evacuate the town. And so you can't fix the root of the problem, but you can ease the suffering of people who are harmed by the problem. So I think if, if, we're, if we're considering a case where we just stipulate that your impact is going to be effectively zero, then I'd say what you should do is try to alleviate the, the negative outcomes of politics and, you know, uh, just sort of recognize that you can't cure the disease, so to speak, but you can treat the symptoms. And then back to, I guess, the end of the question I said, and the term I used, I guess you think that there's a case for reluctant participation if you can have an impact, if you can reasonably see it. So I guess that's ultimately what you're saying. Th that's right. That's okay. right. So so it, it comes back to your, your sober assessment of the impact that you think you can make in politics relative to non-political uh, activities. Shifting gears a little bit, I, just, I wanted you to actually elaborate on something here, and you could just take the wheel on it. Sure. Can you? Because I, I don't want to start it and then have you finish it. You just take it right off the back. Tell us the story about about the dentist in your introduction, <laughs> and and what the moral is there. Just take. Let's take a little segment here, Chris. I'm going to start it off. Chris Fryman goes to the dentist. I do go to the dentist, uh, very regularly. So uh, I, I'm I'm uh, talking in the book about how. Um, you know, many political philosophers and political theorists think that political participation is extremely important and should be the, the centerpiece of uh, many people's social lives. They think, well, one reason to be a little bit worried about that is you might suspect that people whose jobs revolve around politics have, have a bit of a bias towards politics. So it's really important to them, but it doesn't mean it has to be important to you. And uh, I, I uh, talk about the first time I went to my current dentist. We're having this conversation. She, you know, she's getting to know my dental hygiene regime uh, regimen, and she goes, uh, "Okay, so let's uh, let's sort this out here. So, are you on the books to come in every six months for a cleaning?" And I go, "Yeah." She goes, "Okay. Uh, how often do you brush?" And I go, "Minimum of twice a day, sometimes more." She's like, "Okay, okay. Do you do like a kind of a pre pre uh, brush like rinse to like break up plaque?" And I go, "Yeah, actually, I do do that." She's like, "Okay, good, good." Um, what about flossing? And I say, "Floss minimum of once a day. Like I take it take it seriously. Minimum once a day. I always do." She's like, "Okay, that's good." What about like a kind of like do you do a fluoride like a post rinse? Like you you finish brushing your teeth and you rinse with fluoride and then you don't drink or eat anything for a half hour? I say, "Yeah, I do that every single night before I go to bed." She's like, "Okay, good." And then she pauses and goes. Do you water pick? And I say, I do not water pick. And then there's this, this sigh where she's like, you really need to water pick. And I'm thinking, and, I, and I, then I felt this shame uh, that I don't water pick. And I thought to myself, uh, I am already spending quite a bit of time on my teeth every day. <laughs> uh, and I can understand why you, a dentist, would care a lot about maxim optimizing my, my oral uh, hygiene regimen. But like I've got a life to live. Like I can't spend forty-five minutes every day on my teeth. Uh, so like it's possible that you're biased in favor of water picking because you're a dentist. And I think everybody sort of implicitly acknowledges this in lots of cases. So like you know you'll, you'll read these things. They'll say like uh, you know during the summer you have to uh, you know wear sunscreen and then even like you have to wear wear sunscreen under your clothes and you have to like reapply it every three hours. Like these, these crazy things. And you think well nobody's going to do this. Like I can understand why dermatologists are obsessed right, with right. with sunscreen. But like, you know, at a certain point, I gotta, I gotta get on, uh, get on with my life. And I should actually say, by the way, and maybe this actually undercuts this argument. I've actually picked up water picking. I've started water picking, and I think it's actually good. I, I think it actually does help. Uh, Do you want us to edit that well, part out? No, or? no. I guess you can leave it in. Uh, I think it's maybe too late to edit that out of the book. Um, but, but yeah. And so the, to, to bring that back to politics is it's completely understandable why um, people who whose professional lives revolve around politics think it's really important. Um, 
and, and, you know, for them that, that might be the case, but I don't see any particular reason why, you know, just, you know, non-political philosophers, non-political theorists uh, need to make that an important part of their life. There are plenty of other ways that they can contribute to society and do good that don't involve anything with politics. So shifting gears again a little bit, and I'm sure listeners by this many episodes are getting tired of me using that metaphor. So I'm going to change it up a bit because it's true. We're shifting into overdrive here. Okay. Actually. This is where people might think the episode takes a bit of a, a dark turn or frustrating. I one. like the sound of it. Yeah. So so we, we've talked a lot about not having a moral duty. We've talked about, you know, you can't see the consequences of your participation and all the great stuff we've talked about so far. But you close off the case in your upcoming book with a serious claim that takes everything a step further, right? So you say, here's the quote, not only is there no moral duty to participate in politics, which is what we've been talking about, political participation tends to be morally wrong. And as a philosopher, that's not two words that you throw around lightly, morally <laughs> wrong. Right. Yeah. So- uh, one reason you might think this, although this isn't the central reason I give in the book, but I think it's it's worth thinking about, is is t- um, looking at the ways in which it seems like um, politics sort of worsens our moral character, at least in certain arenas. So I think it does. So we alluded to this earlier, where uh, it seems to make us more hostile to other people. Um, we seem to so there's um, some some really frankly frightening work on polarization now, where uh, people are increasingly willing to say things like it would be good if uh, a large number of members of the out party died, and I think that like this is a bad thing to to start thinking. So so that's just a preliminary point. Um, but the central argument that I make for the wrongness of of most political participation of of what you might call feudal political partici- participation. Participation that won't make a difference is uh, is basically the following. So I can set it up with a case. Um, so imagine that you uh, you know you finished a long day at work and you've got a bottle of water, and you're walking down the street and you're approached by two people, both of whom would like the bottle. One person says, "Could I please have that bottle of water from you? Because as you can see, my hair is messy, and I need that water to slick back my hair and make it look good." Say, maybe. And you turn to the other person and the other person says, could I have that bottle of water? I'm dying of thirst and I need that bottle to live. And you might think, okay, uh, perhaps you don't have a duty to give it to either one. I'm inclined to think that you do have such a duty, but you might say it's in fact permissible to keep it to yourself. Say it's you know it's your bottle maybe like I said I'm not inclined towards that view myself but but you might have that view but suppose you say you know what I'm going to do a good thing I am going to give up my bottle of water to somebody who wants it I think in that case it would be wrong of you to give it to the hair guy rather than the dying guy you might say well why is that the case well the cost to you is equal so it's no more costly for you to give it to uh, the dying guy than the hair guy. You don't have any particular duty to either one of them. So it's not like you promised one of them the water beforehand. Let's assume they're not family members. They're both strangers. The only difference really is that one really, really needs it and the other doesn't. So the the, the benefit that you can produce, the, the suffering that you can alleviate in the case of the guy who's dying uh, of thirst is much, much greater than giving the bottle of water to the person who merely wants to fix up their hair. So I think a principle that emerges from this has what's been called um, uh, a conditional obligation of effective altruism, which basically means insofar as you're helping, insofar as you're being altruistic, it's morally wrong to do uh, one form of help when it's vastly less beneficial than another form of help. And so uh, to bring this back to the case of political participation, you might say, I don't know, maybe you have 15 more presidential elections during your lifetime or something. And now that I'm saying that out loud, that sounds like so many and uh, so horrible. Uh, <laughs> can I endure that many? Um, 15 or so. I say, okay. Well, multiply that by the amount of years of campaign that you'll oh. be exposed to. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, the, the number of minutes of advertisements. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, so so a, a lot of time that you could devote to taking politics seriously, but the expected social benefit of that is probably close to zero for the sorts of reasons that we've discussed. So you're investing lots of time and energy into something that will probably alleviate next to no suffering. Or you could say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the advice of this book and I'm going to quit politics. Uh, The time that I would have spent debating, watching debates on TV, voting, 
campaigning, phone banking, whatever. I'm just going to stop all that. I'm going to devote all that time to, say, working a little bit of overtime at my job. Uh, and so I'm not saying that you have to do more than you're currently doing. I'm just saying you should sort of reallocate your altruistic resources. So take whatever mm. time you would have spent on politics, put it into something else. So just let's just say work overtime at your job. Work overtime at your job, maybe it's an extra hour a month for the next, uh, I don't know, 60 years or something like that. You know, put it in a decent performing, you know, mutual fund or something like that. Uh, and, and by the time that's all done, you'll probably have enough money to donate it to a charity and save like 15 lives. Something like that. I, I have I have the math somewhere in my book, but it's like a a pretty pretty uh, good number of people whose lives it could save. And to say, okay, to bring it back to the water case, you could either uh, sort of devote your altruistic resources to the person whose life you could save, or to the person for whom it's not really going to make much of a difference. And so, if you think, well, it seems pretty clear that you have to allocate your resources in the water case to the cause that's actually going to save lives and alleviate suffering. And it would be wrong to forego the opportunity to save a life and alleviate suffering to do something that makes no difference. It seems like the same argument is going to apply in the political case. So you have this opportunity um, to save dozens of lives, perhaps, over the course of your own life, as long as you just disengage from political uh, political activity. And I think that the same reasons that would make it wrong to uh, give the water to the hair guy rather than the dying guy are also reasons why it would be wrong to donate your time and effort and resources to politics than to really effective non-political forms of altruism. So, so to summarize, the idea here is if you, like you were saying, if you do have that extra time, that you know, um, and and we are assuming in the background too, like you said, that let's assume you have a moral duty to help somebody at alleviate suffering in the world, that kind of thing. You're saying, let's say you have an extra five hours a week to spend. It'd probably be better off spent, assuming that choice A and B is A in a soup kitchen volunteering versus B volunteering for the Liberal Party of Canada or something like that. that, that that's right. That's right. And yeah, I, I think really I would say, yeah, I mean, all of this is going to be contingent on personal circumstances and things like that. But it's probably the case that, um, you know, uh, yeah, seeing if you can work overtime at your job and, you know, investing that and then sending that money overseas to the Against Malaria Foundation, those sorts of things um, are, are, you know, they're, they're a little burdensome. You, you know, you're working more, but it's not um, super burdensome. Uh, and they'll certainly do more good for you than political engagement. And this actually goes back to the to the therapeutic point as well. Uh, so political engagement makes us pretty angry. Uh, but there's evidence that suggests that charitable giving makes us marginally happier. So it's good right. for you too. I'm going to wrap up with a f final question here before we do, do the formal wrap up. And, and before I ask my final question and we go into the last segment there, I also want to, I want to preface it by some Canadian stats as well, because I think a lot of people when we're talking might think, oh, those Americans are crazy about politics. Well, you know, it turns out a lot of Canadians think, uh, you know, on, on first glance that uh, voting and being politically active is, is some sort of duty. So uh, Canadians aged 55 and over are more likely to endorse compulsory voting actually for federal ballots. It sits at about 68% than those aged 18 to 34, which still sits at 59% and those aged 35, which uh, sits around 57%. And uh, we can put the uh, the source of these stats in our episode notes if you guys ch uh, check that out. Another point of interest is in, in Canada, and here I quote our source, in this century, no Canadian federal election has reached a participation threshold of 70%. The last one in 2015 came close at 69%, but still has been lower than the last two elections won by Brian Mulroney and the Progressive Conservatives in 1984 and 1988, which was about 75% participation each. Um, but still, even though that's where we have our uh, participation rates, people still think that uh, that you know voting and voting and furthermore having compulsory voting laws might even be a good thing. So that is all that to say that th there's a lot of for those Canadians listening. Note that the attitude here about this kind of duty is pretty pretty strong here as well. And and uh, like I said, that was a preface to my final point here, which I wanted to ask you: Do, do you think there's too much emphasis when we, people talk about politics? on it solely being about you, the individual, voting or watching MSNBC, Fox News, getting really angry and then having an opinion at Thanksgiving again, I'll use that. Whereas in reality that when we live in relatively democratic societies, is, is there merit to, if you can't convince, I should say, if you can't convince someone to just disengage from politics completely, is, is there merit in least, you think, asking them to broaden their idea and broaden what their idea of the scope of dem democracy should be, where instead of just, just as voting we can think of, like you were saying, community engagement, even if it's not completely detached from politics, you're getting involved in some sort of political activism that's going to, I don't know, prevent some sort of lake from being polluted by some corporate privilege or something, or, or even the state is going to dump something there. Like, is, is there, is, 
again, putting aside voting and being capital R Republican or capital D Democrat, is there at least merit in a broader form of democratic and community thinking through politics? I, I certainly think that would be an improvement over this this fixation on voting. Like civil disobedience is another thing comes to mind. You know, that that's political. Right. It's not saying after our civil disobedience, we'll have a T and go vote Democrat. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. So the, so the lines between political and non-political engagement aren't always super clear. And, right. And, and so sometimes when I chat with people about this, they'll say, yeah, like a, a lot of stuff that like you're talking about is a political act. So, uh, you know, d- going to the food bank or, uh, you know, like doing uh, like local environmental cleanups and things like that. It's like those are political. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm happy to, to concede the term. And I would say th- so. I mean, if we want to count that sort of stuff as political, I think that's that's much better than the, the sort of focus we have on like watching the debates, going to the polls, et, et cetera, et cetera, uh, for a couple of reasons. So one is that I think those cases are just they're more likely to have an impact. Right. So, you know, you clean up a local park or something like that. Um, like that's good. Like that's actually going to make a difference in the world and it's going to benefit people. And also I think the problems in figuring out whether your action is ultimately going to be beneficial or not, um, aren't quite as um, difficult. So part of the problem when you're trying to figure out, you know, what the right party to support is, is there just so many issues and so many complicated issues that all get bundled together. So, you know, gun control, immigration, environmental policy, uh, all these sorts of things, you know, different different um, parties have different bundles of these policy recommendations. And it's just hard to know who gets them right. All things considered, right? I think it's much easier to know that you know this this hungry kid who needs a meal, and you give them a meal that that kid is better off as a result of of your intervention, or uh, like in, in in some of the cases that you gave where uh, somebody's polluting a local river or something like that. You make a difference. It's pretty pretty easy to tell that you're making a difference for the better, right? And so my view is that that's an improvement over. Uh, again, this relentless fixation on voting. Again, I, I'm still um, partial to the idea that you should direct your altruistic resources to the places where they do the most good. So it's probably the case that you should f- focus most of your time on funding the Against Malaria Foundation in particular. Um, but if if you're choosing between local engagement and national scale political engagement, I would go for the local scale. That makes a lot of sense. And, and our time has wound down here completely. So let's bring it full circle and put a finer point on our question of exploration today. And as you know, I like to end the episode by letting the guests have the last word. So we've talked about a lot. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether it's okay to ignore politics? It's definitely okay to ignore politics. You will almost certainly be happier if you ignore politics. And if you devote the time and effort that you're currently devoting to politics to other forms of altruism, you'll make the world a better place too. Short and sweet. Chris Fryman, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.